If you work in data visualization, our guest this week needs no introduction. His name is Nathan Yaw. And for those of you who don't work in visualization, I'm going to say a little bit about him. Nathan is commonly called one of the most influential figures in the world of data visualization, thanks to the materials that throughout the years he has been posting in his uh, web blog, uh, Flowing Data. The, the website is flowingdata.com. In that blog, Nathan has been writing for more than a decade and a half about data visualization, posting the work of people whom he admires, posting tutorials. And he's also the author of a couple of books. The first one published in 2011, Visualize These, and then in 2013, Data Points. In our discussion, uh, Simon, Nathan, and I talk about the genesis of flowing data. We talk about Nathan's career in statistics, data science, and data visualization, and also about a lot of different things. I'm Nathan Yao, and I, I run a site called Flowing Data, and the focus is on uh, uh, visualization. The overarching theme of it is helping people understand data, and just through, through grad school and up to now, it's been, I, visualization has been the way to get the most people to understand data in some regard. So okay. I try to focus on that and uh, make my own projects, and I try to highlight other projects that I think are, are worthwhile, and then I try to teach concepts. So hopefully get past, you know, like the basic stuff and try to go into more advanced things. Great. Well, welcome, Nathan. It's so great to uh, to chat. And like I said to you earlier, I feel like we've, we know each other already for years because um, you've definitely been a, a, an influence on my career. But tell us a little bit about how you got into doing this in the first place. I started in grad school and it was, I had to buy a domain name because I had to pay for hosting uh, for my class project. And it was during my second year of grad school. And so uh, the, uh, the class had was called Dataflows and Dataflows was taken. Uh, so I tried variants of that and I just bought the domain name flowingdata.com. Uh, and then it was a placeholder for just my class projects for maybe a year. And then I, I finished my master's and then I had to move to Buffalo with my wife who was doing, doing her residency there. Um, and so I was studying, I was still trying to study towards my PhD in Buffalo uh, with, so my PhD is at, from UCLA. Um, and so I was used flowing data to share ideas and share things with my classmates. Uh, who I was away from now was on the other side of the country. Um, so it's just a way for for me to document things I was learning because I was still learning about what parts were and what visualization was. Um, so I use it to journal it and use it to share it. And then uh, it kind of went from there. And I would, at the very beginning, it was very much me learning about charts and what that meant beyond analysis. I definitely feel like you hit a momentum when you started doing this because it, it was at a time when actually there wasn't a lot out there for people who were just getting started, but there was a great enthusiasm to do so. Um, did you feel that momentum when you started? Yeah, I, I think so. The way that I even got into visualization was um, 
my the very first introduction was from my advisor Mark Hansen, and he introduced visualization to my class as a guest speaker. Um, in in uh, he framed it as data art, and I had never heard of that before. I had only made charts or some reports for my science fair projects in college or high school, and um, but the way I really got into visualization was seeing the art because I had never even heard of visualization to begin with. So I went home and I Googled data visualization and found information aesthetics from Andrew Vandemore. Um, and so that was what really got me excited about visualization. But then, so with that in mind, I started looking at it more and there were like charts about clarity and sort of like clean looking charts. but I always was interested in it because of the other side that was not so clear and more like meaningful in an emotional respect. Um, so I was always looking at that. Um, and then, so when I just started making charts on my own, trying to figure it out, um, I started seeing like these really giant charts uh, appear in the browsers and it, you know scrolling up and down. And so that really seemed to explode things. And I, it, was, it was sort of like another version of of PowerPoint, but uh, it really caught on. <laughs> it caught on unexpectedly, and then I would make. Sometimes I would make things, and that really caught on unexpectedly, like far beyond my grad school classmates. And then, so I kind of saw something that was happening. It seemed to be happening. You also had some experience in journalism, if I remember well. You worked at the at the New York Times for a while, right? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> I don't, I think I mentioned to Alberto, but I, I sat behind him. I think you were doing an adult piece or there were tennis uh, illustrations. Yeah, now, now I remember. Yeah, you mentioned that to me once. I, I visited the New York Times, I think that it was in 2007, I think that it was, or eight. And I, I was collaborating in a piece about tennis. I think that it was. And mm -hmm. yeah, you mentioned that to me. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty quiet person, so I didn't. I don't I didn't really talk to you. I don't think I didn't I don't think I talked to you. I didn't even know who you were really. Um uh so yeah, I was just a, I was an intern and before then I was I only made some charts in R for, for analysis reports. And so when I got to the New York Times, it was uh I was just learning how to use Illustrator and how to like annotate it. And it was definitely uh for a much wider audience than I was used to. So I learned um, a lot about getting, so I, I mean, getting, communicating data to a very general audience instead of just um, people who are used to working with data. Um, and that sort of influenced my PhD work because my PhD work was um, about how people interact with data in their everyday lives with personal data collection, uh, with their cell phones and whatnot. And so I was um, thought about how non-professionals, people who don't work with data all the time, um, communicate and understand data and what is important to them in some way, or what they like, what the threshold is for understanding a data set. So that that kind of appeal to general audiences seems really key to me. I think that's partly why you've had the impact you had with. Was that something you were consciously doing at the beginning? Were you just trying to, because you were learning yourself, you were trying to convey that to the 
the audience as well. I, yeah, I guess so because, um, so right before the New York Times, I was working uh, with a research group for, for grad school and we were collecting, collecting, people were collecting data with their cell phones, uh, pollution data. Well, actually it was location data and then we would interpolate uh, the pollution that they were exposed to based on where they went during the day. Um, and so, I mean, one example is I, I, I made a, a histogram on a map and almost nobody understood that histogram even though for me um, the histogram is like you know uh, i use it all the time because i'm from statistics and it's like probably my most used chart so and i was surprised that i was presenting this application to mostly engineers but they didn't they read it in a different way and so i kind of saw that as sort of um, Maybe one of the disconnects between statistical visualization for analysis versus visualization for communication. Although, although I would say that histograms have become more common in the past few years in news media, particularly when it comes to reporting about um, a possible election outcomes, and they mm -hmm. they sort of like show forecast models and where the the range of possible outcomes may come. We see we see histograms sometimes. In the New York Times and or, or 538, same way as 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 a scatter plots, right? I'm, I'm older than you are. I still remember editors in newspapers being wary about about publishing scatter plots because they were afraid that readers would not uh, understand them. Have you experienced sort of like some sort of um, progress in the way that uh, readers uh, approach these types of charts? Have you changed, for example, the way or the sophistication of the, the the types of charts that you create or try to teach about through your website throughout the years because of this phenomenon of increasing sophistication of the public it's definitely it's definitely gone past those those big infographics from a long time from it's not that long ago uh eight years ago or something um and i think people are a little more willing to understand the charts spend a little more time with it um, but I think, so for me, when I try to do it, if I have a more complicated chart, I try to go to the most basic example of that chart. Um, so if I have, usually in my, in analysis, I'll have, I'll end up with a bunch of small multiples or like a grid of, of, uh, a couple of dimensions. And then, for example, I would start with like the, the overall population instead of a bunch of subgroups and then kind of move down into depth so that they get to the main result that I actually want them to see. I think I think the the literacy is is still pretty pretty tough. Um, because there are always people who are coming to it brand new. So you have to um, I don't know, it, it depends who you <laughs> who you want to see the see those data points. And one thing I feel is that a few years ago, it was enough for stuff to look pretty. You know what I mean? And that that's, you could go quite far on something that just kind of looked cool. And now there has to be a story there, a compelling story, or the data has to tell you something. And if it's telling you something in a more simple way, that's okay. Um, are you seeing that as well? Or is that just my my bias and predisposition? I don't know. It seems like a crapshoot. It's... <laughs> Um, as far as just 
you know, what becomes extremely popular and what doesn't, it just sort of confuses me. And so I just don't, I try not to uh, go too deep into it. Um, it's, it seems like there are things that are very simple as far as what they show and seem very obvious, but they become extremely popular. Um, and then there's also like really complex things that I don't think anyone will get, but end up becoming popular too, because they're, they are pretty and the pretty gets them, gets, gets them to a point of wanting to know more. Um, well, but I, I mean, there's the still a lot of things that are pretty, yeah. The pretty, the fun, the joy, the humor, I think that really gets people in, um, for, at least for flowing data, um, there has to be like some sort of connection with mm. the person and the, I like to go the, the happiness route instead of the anger and, um, madness route, I guess, <laughs> which I mean, there, I think there's like, people are covering that side really well. So. One way. thing, and one thing that I was about to say related to the answer to your answer to the previous question is that something that I have really appreciated to the way that you write about visualization is that you are much more descriptive than prescriptive. So you essentially take a look at the landscape, see what it's out there. You comment on it, but you comment on it in a very non-judgmental way. You simply describe what you like, and you try not to sort of like impose a view of doing things, right? Which is something that many of us have fallen for. I've fallen for that, trying to sort of like prescribe what is appropriate or not appropriate. And I, I changed my mind throughout the years as I would need to be much less prescriptive and much more, much more descriptive and let people experiment with the form and see what they can come up with. There would be many mistakes out there being made, but those mistakes will be eventually ruled out through the process of evolution of, of of data visualization does this sort of like capture the way that you see things or or is it just my reading too much and projecting myself onto your work no i think that's exactly what i i go for <laughs> um I, I mean in the beginning i was if if you go way back to the beginning of when i was writing i'm it's kind of embarrassing about what i wrote about and how i wrote but is more prescriptive and I would maybe go into things of that were bad or didn't look good in for my eyes um, what I was doing. Um, but I've been also at the time there was a lot of there were a lot of other blogs that sort of talked about how charts were bad and certain aspects of it were bad. And I would read them and it started to sound the same over and over again. And even though I felt like even though they were talking about it, nothing, not that much was changing as far as, I mean, it, it seemed like they were trying to encourage a certain type of chart and discourage, strongly discourage a certain other types of charts. Um, but regardless of whatever they did, people would sort of latch on to what they liked and they would just do it. And so it sort of like urges to um, what people like. And if what people like it doesn't happen to be perceptually the most accurate, then that's just what's what it's going to be. I'm not sure how it, you can do anything about it. One thing um, I wanted to thank you for is I, I learned how to use R to make 
a chart you use from one of your tutorials. And that really made me think about the value of of just like what you can teach others. It's important. This was something that, you know, just like so easy and simple to use. I and mean, how important is it to you that people are learning or given the opportunity to learn through through your work? I, I guess it's I mean it's I think it's very important. It's gone through gone through different phases. Um like many years ago, I wrote sort of um a mission statement with flowing data and it was is um but i just wanted to help people understand data in some regard um and definitely people who don't work with data um so i think there's from my point of view there's two main ways to do it and one is to teach people who work with data already to communicate better and so they get and so you have a larger population of people who can make charts and understand and communicate data to, a, to their audiences or to a larger audience. Um, and then the other route is communicating just I, me, myself, and making things to communicate data in some way. And I guess I'm usually not trying to help people. A, understand charts so much as to I'm trying to help them understand data as it relates to their daily life. And I think if people see data in their lives, like in their day-to-day -day life, um, they'll be more willing to like look into data as it relates to other people and larger populations and people who they don't know about so much that they can see how data relates to them and then it, that sort of you know the people who are making charts and people who are consuming charts and you know collectively understand and help each other understand data better in some way hopefully besides running one of the most influential weblogs in the world of data visualization you've also written two also very influential books about the field visualize these and uh, data points uh, so, a couple of questions about that. Uh, will there be a third book to create a Lord of the Rings type trilogy of books? And what comes next for flowingdata.com? I, I'm, uh, I don't know if there will be a book. I don't think there will be a book. I've told. Usually people who ask me, I say, I don't think I have another book ending um, because that was, I wrote them so long ago, it seems like a previous life. It was, I was still in school when I wrote those. And so my, um, my perspective has changed and my skill sets have changed. Um, the tools have changed, everything has changed. So maybe there's um, a worthwhile book or update in that regard. Um, with flowing data in general, um, I, I find that I'm most, I feel most fulfilled when I'm looking at the data myself and making things myself. Um, so I like, I'm most always interested in different ways to communicate data. And I feel like a lot of the charts that are published online are sort of they've kind of converged to similar styles, similar things, and similar types. 
my hope, I, I guess my hope in 10 years is that visualization doesn't almost looks nothing like it does now. Or when I, at least when I'm no longer doing this work that I just don't, I want to be the guy who sees it and I thinking back to what it was like and just what, what it is at that, at that moment to be completely different. Um, and so I hope point that it can sort of evolve with that tool-wise and chart-wise and technology-wise. And I think it'll, it's more, it seems to be more fun that way. Cool. Thanks, Nathan. And um, thank you so much for being with us today. So we always end with a little pop quiz. I guess we'll do three of these this week that we ask everybody. And we're totally putting you on the spot because we're giving you zero time preparation. But uh, I'm going to kick off the first one, which is if you could keep just one of the tools that you commonly use, what would it be? No, that's, that's really easy. It's R because um, it's my thinking language. And so I, I've used it long enough to, I don't have to think so much about how to use it. And it's more about uh, what I want to do with it. So R for the win with this one. This R, R comes up every week. I think this is so interesting. Alberto, you next. Yeah, I was about to say that I echo something that Simon mentioned before about learning R through flowing data. I can also speak about that because I use some of those tutorials myself that you wrote to teach myself a little bit of the of the program. So I really appreciate all the work that you put in those. So the next question is, um, what would you have done, you think, if you hadn't gone into data science, statistics, data visualization? What do you think that you would have become? I it would probably be food related. I cook a lot and I I brew a lot of beer, um, and so I guess I say do what you do in your spare time, and I do a lot of that. Um, so I don't know if it would be a cook or a chef, but it would be something related to that. Oh, this has opened up a whole new avenue for this uh, this podcast. What's your favorite? What's your go to meal? Uh, it's whatever is in the fridge, so I kind of just go what I have with the ingredients. That's an excellent answer. Absolutely. Okay, last question. Pie charts or tree maps? <laughs> yeah, probably pie charts because if it's a tree map, then the pie chart can't be used. So the pie chart. Oh, very it's, good it's, not, it's not a trick question, by the way. We ask it almost, <laughs> to, almost to everybody. <laughs> Nathan, thank you so much for making the time. This was a lot of fun. 